2: And we're still talking about revolution.
3: Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. It's approximately 4.01 and um, I'll be broadcasting a panel discussion, principles and frameworks for accountability and this was organised by Undercurrents Victoria, who were doing a a workshop series. The event happened on the 30th of October 2017, and the panel discussion is entitled Principles and Frameworks for Accountability. And I won't say too much about it. I'll be very brief because there's going to be an intro before each speaker. The panel discussion will run over two Mondays, starting today, due to time constraints, and all speakers will be... um, broadcasted. And as I said, each speaker will be introduced. Thank you very much to Iris from Queering the Air, who recorded and prepared this material. And so on the show today, we'll have Lauren Caulfield from Flemington-Kensington Community Legal Centre speaking. Um, she's from the Police Accountability Project. Um, Kira Vuller, sister of Dylan Vola, who we've interviewed before, and also from Shutdown Youth Prisons. And um, and myself, Marissa, um, speaking about the Do and Time show. The second half will air next Monday, the 13th of November. And on that program, there'll be Anthony Kelly, um, Executive Officer of Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre, and also um, Ada Comroy, who um, who has extensive experiences in the family violence sector and in facilitating men's behaviour change programs. And we'll also hear um, the speaker, Anthony Likas, as well um, next week, who is a counsellor and family violence practitioner at the Victorian AIDS Council. It's approximately 4.03, so we'll start off with this broadcast um, and introduce and, and do Lauren Caulfield um, first, followed by um, Kira Volla, and then followed by um, myself at, at the end. Here we go.
2: Hi everyone. Um, before we get started, we'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting today on Stolen Land. We acknowledge the Bunurong and Woburum people of the Kulin Nation as the owners of this, of this land. and We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people present today. We also acknowledge that this land was invaded and that Aboriginal people have continuously resisted the occupation of their lands for over 200 years. This is the last of a series of facilitated conversations about abuse, support and accountability. Our aim is to create spaces to normalise these conversations. Uh, We want to be able to examine victim-blaming attitudes that perpetuate and enable abuse, and to encourage ourselves and each other to talk more about these issues within our friendships, families and communities.
4: So, <laughs> sorry. Um, this workshop series has come out of Undercurrent Community Education Project and the Transformative Justice Network. Undercurrent Community Education Project is a non profit, self funded organisation. We do workshops in high schools, TAFEs, universities, services, and with community groups about uh, relationships, sex education, sexuality, gender family violence, sexual assault, and support, with a focus on developing skills and conversations to challenge um, myths about violence, and also to support each other better and ultimately prevent violence occurring and create different ways of dealing with it in our communities. Um, And the Transformative Justice Network is a newly formed network that is aimed at sharing skills, supporting each other, and creating links between different collectives and people who are working on transformative justice community accountability projects, um, particularly around Melbourne, but also around Australia. If you are interested after the workshop in any more information or um, getting connected with any of those organisations, there are sign up sheets outside. And there's also a lot of resources that have been available throughout the whole uh, workshop series on the table outside, so including information about support services, um, support skills, um, and also like frameworks for understanding the drivers of violence outside of a gendered, specifically gendered violence framework.
2: So the first speaker today is Lauren Caulfield. Uh, Lauren is a community organiser whose work focuses on interpersonal and state-sanctioned gender violence, community-based responses to violence, and the nexus of racialised and gendered violence. Lauren currently works on the Police Accountability Project at Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre and with the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre. She'll be talking about community-based frameworks for violence prevention, intervention, survivor support and accountability, with a particular focus on supporting survivors of family violence and sexual assault. Come closer.
0: Thanks very much um, for inviting me to be part of the panel this evening. I'm really excited to be here. By excited, I mean I've just started cracking myself a little bit. Um, so I wanted to add to the um, acknowledgement of traditional owners um, and country by also acknowledging the survivors of communities who've worked to build this work over a really huge period of time, especially First Nations and cutie pop communities internationally. Um, so I'm speaking about community accountability and community-based responses to gendered and intimate partner violence tonight. Um, and as something of a kind of an introductory caveat, I wanted to say that I'm also a little bit wary of the framing of community accountability responses or at least those that I'm kind of all um, involved with um, as, as an alternative to the prison industrial complex or as an alternative to police and prisons, because I think this assumes um, an established capacity to respond when in reality um, situations can often be quite humbling. Um, And also I think it risks creating a situation where survivors can be pressured to sort of demonstrate their radical politics by not calling the police um, and instead taking up community responses. And also that it it potentially risks building the false idea that we can eliminate the harms of the prison industrial complex through community-based interventions to violence alone. And of course we can't do that. Um, And the other caveat that I've Think is um, related to that is that because of our tendency to focus our community accountability or community based interventions on responses to intimate partner violence and, and sexual violence and that ilk of harm. I think, rather than other types of harms that are perpetrated in our communities, it can mean that often... It also risks creating a situation where we're sort of testing some of these initiatives kind of light to air um, on the lives of survivors, which I think... So that's all kind of some of the um, risk and and framing stuff that I see. Um, And I also wanted to note that while it's... Obviously, it's a really essential intersection that we're working at. um, And is it my movement that's doing that? Sorry, I'm really flat. I'll try and hold my hands like this. Um, So (laughs) I have to stop flapping. So um, while it's a really essential intersection, and we absolutely need to develop strategies that tackle both state-based and interpersonal violence, it's not always an easy alliance, obviously, between feminist anti-violence work and prison abolitionism. Um, and I think that's because the former has often built relationships with and advocated for the role of police and prisons without um, necessarily engaging with the real critique and acknowledgement of their inherent violence, the harms that they entail, um, the ways that the prison industrial complex um, disproportionately criminalises survivors of violence. First Nations people and um, and people of colour, to name just a few. And the ways that also building relationships with police and prisons also serves to enshrine and legitimise their role and, and um, assists in kind of confusing the idea of accountability with punishment. Um, but then in turn, I think from a prison abolitionist perspective... Um, Prison abolitionism has also um, sometimes failed to sufficiently answer the question about what what mechanisms actually exist for survivors, particularly right now, how those will be prioritised and what happens in the smaller proportion of situations where people are repeatedly or seriously violent and perhaps community capacity is not yet up to dealing with that. Um, so I wanted to kind of name those, those complexities up front, um, and with that in mind, community-based anti-violence work is necessarily really um, deeply hopeful or optimistic work. It's very much still underway um, and, and under evolution, and like anything that straddles complexity, it's the subject of a lot of debate and contention and critique, um, not least from those engaged in the work and within the field. Um, So there's limited time tonight, I'm going to try and jam it into 20 minutes, Um, but I was asked to talk about principles and frameworks, so my plan was to talk about um, some of those frameworks and principles, so a bit of the theory, but in a nutshell, to talk about some local examples and then to touch on a couple of challenges and directions in the work locally. Um, So up here is um, is some information that's taken from Insight, Feminists of Colour Against Violence, who were one of the um, groups of people who coined the term Community Accountability, that talks about community accountability as a a community-based strategy rather than a police or prisons-based strategy to tackle violence. So it's essentially how we work to address violence within our communities rather than assuming that this is the work of outside experts. Um, And it might be difficult to read, but in the kind of petals of the flower um, are a number of principles. So community accountability is a process in which a community, whether that's a group of friends, a family, a workplace, a neighbourhood, a music scene, a campaign collective, work together to do the following things. So firstly, to create and affirm values and practices that resist abuse and oppression and encourage safety, support and accountability. Secondly, to provide safety and support to community members who are violently targeted and support that respects their self-determination, which is a really important delineator from some other work. Um, thirdly, to develop sustainable strategies to address community members' abusive behaviour, including via creating a process for them to account for their actions and transform their behaviour. So that third pedal is the one that I think gets a lot of attention um, as compared to some of the other avenues of community-based work. Um, and fourth, to commit to ongoing development of all members of the community and the community itself to transform the political conditions that reinforce oppression and violence. Um, the other term that's often used I have a blink, is, um, is transformative justice. So transformative justice is, is a liberatory approach to violence which seeks safety and accountability without relying on alienation, punishment or state or systemic violence So it's trying to delineate both from the tactics of the prison industrial complex as well as the agencies themselves, um, including incarceration or policing. Um, And the the three core principles appear on the slide. So um, individual justice and... um, Sorry, I've lost my page. Um, Individual justice and collective liberation are equally important, mutually supportive and fundamentally intertwined. So the one can't be achieved without the other. Um, Secondly, that the conditions that allow violence to occur must be transformed in order to achieve justice in individual instances of violence. And thirdly, that state and systemic responses to violence, including the criminal legal system and child welfare agencies, not only fail to advance individual and collective justice, but also also condone and perpetuate cycles of violence. So transformative justice seeks to provide people who experience violence with immediate safety and long-term healing um, and reparations while holding people who commit violence accountable within and by their communities. Um, Another couple of of quick terminology or or theory aspects are that um, sometimes there's there's, um, not much distinction drawn between transformative justice and restorative justice, and there's a couple of really crucial distinctions, one of which is that um, transformative justice absolutely is explicitly decoupled from the criminal legal system in a way that restorative justice often isn't. And also the way that restorative justice seeks to restore the pre-harm conditions. Transformative justice seeks to go a step further and to say, well, the conditions that were in place when the harm occurred weren't good enough and they actually warrant transformation as well. Um, So they're beautiful and powerful concepts. They're also um, potentially sometimes quite aspirational. You know, transforming all of the conditions that, that led to harm is like No big deal, right? All over it. Um, And the other thing to note is that I think that, especially when we consider the kind of the flower of community accountability work, that it, um, similar to a lot of agency-based work, covers the full continuum from violence prevention to intervention and crisis response, survivor support and perpetrator accountability. Um, I think there's often a tendency to think of community accountability as solely the work around perpetrator accountability, so facilitated processes with people who used violence or or caused harm. Um, And, of course, it's not an either-or choice between survivor support and accountability either. So survivor-centric ethics are absolutely key to community accountability work. Um, and the other kind of principle that I wanted to draw out of that is the idea of um, individual versus collective accountability. So a whole lot of, um, of kind of traditional anti-violence work, including a lot of work that comes out of an agency space, tends to view the idea of accountability as the, the job of the person who's, who's committed the harm. So that's the person who is the one to be accountable for violence. Whereas community accountability also sees that communities must collectively take responsibility for harm by becoming more knowledgeable and skillful and willing to intervene when violence or harm occurs um, and to support the conditions that prevent it from occurring. And I think when we see accountability as a collective skill rather than an individual skill, we look at it entirely differently. Um, Facilitated processes then become just one tactic to respond to harm. And if we assume that accountability is only related to the perpetrator, it leads to us being in a situation where we're like, if that person doesn't acknowledge the harm, there's nothing that we can do, whereas actually there's often an enormous amount that we can do even if that person is refusing to acknowledge harm. Um, I wanted to quickly scan for some examples. There's probably heaps of different examples that people have in the room of, of community accountability work that happens locally, but I wanted to note community-based um, violence prevention work and, um, and trainings like this. Thanks, Undercurrent. the um, the transformative justice camp, the work of the transformative justice network, so education and resource sharing, that including the work that traverses or adapts tools that are used in an agency space for community interventions, mentoring and supporting people in the work, street patrols. I think we'll talk about some of those storytelling and advocacy. So I'm thinking of projects like. Ooh like I Am Not My Skin, um, in which Pacifica and Polynesian youth talk about their experiences of state-based violence. Survivor support, both individual support and the work of collectives, so the new survivor support collective, but previously the work of collectives like A World Without. Um, safer spaces work done on a kind of case-by-case basis and in particular communities and venues. Work that focuses on gender violence enacted in prisons, so including the violence of strip searchers. The state-sanctioned sexual assault, the work of Inside Out and others. So there's a huge amount of um, community accountability work that happens locally, Um, and certainly collectives and projects that hold abolitionist ethics in anti-violence work. So undercurrent, the Abolitionist and Transformative Justice Centre, and who work to address intimate partner violence but also act in solidarity with criminalised and incarcerated people. Um, And then, of course, facilitated accountability work with people who've caused harm. Um, I assumed I'd probably be speaking after Anthony and Ada. So I'm going speak like from a premonition perspective and say that um, that I think you know they they' touched on that work in an agency context, but there's a um, a large number of parallels with the kind of accountability work that also happens um, from a community space. So those parallels are things like taking a psychoeducational approach, um some of the techniques like risk assessment and partner contact work in tandem and as regular check-in and reference point, or the architecture of an accountability process, use of the power and control framework and a focus on privilege um, and entitlement rather than sort of spurious ideas of of anger management work. Um, And there's also some key ways that community-based accountability work differs from agency-based work. And some of that is um, often it's, you know, it might occur in a one-on-one way. It can occur over a longer term that community-based interventions often don't have the same leverage as court-based mandates to get people to engage or to come along, which is not to say that there's no leverage, but it's often a different kind of leverage. Um, and so subsequently tend to work more with people who at least acknowledge the harm you know, that it's occurred and express some kind of willingness to engage in accountability. And also, of course, it occurs in a known location and is often work with known people, which is quite different as well from... Um, from some mbc based work. And the other um, important principle there is survivor-led ethics, so centering survivors in accountability processes. Often um, in those processes, the survivors' needs and requests provide the starting point and the architecture of the process. Uh, and the other piece of work that I think happens um, locally or is, or is happening more locally is work to develop thoughtful and useful responses to interpersonal violence that add to and build beyond the kind of triple zero or call the police reflex. So actually, work that looks at community divestment from police and prisons. And I'm thinking of the Beyond Triple Zero workshops and some of that work with agencies, kind of pushing back on the idea that the default response to violence is always to call the police. Um, for in terms of challenges and directions, I'm talking fast to, to smash through it all. Um, there's obviously a like a zillion challenges and dilemmas and paradoxes in the work. So issues like what if the person causing harm doesn't want to be accountable? How do we avoid compounding harm or replicating oppressive tactics in our interventions? Um, How do we appropriately pay homage to the communities who've developed this work and avoid appropriation while also stepping up to do this work in our own communities? Um, But a really central challenge that comes up all the time um, and is spoken about a lot in Melbourne is the challenge of kind of is the community you know so how do we define a community if we're bound together by politics or identity or friendship rather than geography or necessity and how do we create conditions that mean that the community will hold together in the challenging circumstances of anti-violence work or when a harm has occurred particularly a serious harm Um, and I had a quote I wanted to put up there from and activist Norma, who, um, who I interviewed for a research project and she said, um, I think a lot of the time the way that people start engaging with community accountability is there's an incident and we're trying to figure out what to do and there's this really rad approach that we've heard about and we end up trying something, burning out, and then there's another phase and another phase of people going through that arc. And I remember a few years ago someone saying, what would it be like if we knew that there was going to be an incident of harm in our community in three to five years? What would we do now to actually be ready by then rather than just leaping into action because we know something's happening right now, which is coming out of a well-intentioned impulse to help, but often not having laid that groundwork. Yeah, and so um, I think that leads to a kind of a directional thing, which is about building accountable communities, so building the skills and capacity for collective response and there's no magic fix answer to that. Like that's about building, um, working together to build a shared analysis of violence and deepening our own understandings and personal practice rather than assuming that this is something that we just have or that it's shared because we're kind of radical um, and to embed this in our communities in an ongoing way. Um, so that's about taking ourselves through resources, writing, building spaces for community dialogue, storytelling, training, events and discussions like this sharing and reflecting and like archiving, archiving and actually talking about our experiences so that we're not losing that knowledge from intervention to intervention and working deliberately on self-accountability and accountable relationships um, as a building block for community accountability. So the idea that we're making agreements in advance of a harm to come, that means we'll be better equipped to respond to that. Um, And the second area that I wanted to talk about was how we make our critique effective and useful. I've got one more slide. Um, So how we evaluate our work, and um, there was a comment um, that I put up, there was a quote from um, Jenna who works with Phyllis Up, who said, "Um, once we became focused on success, we tended to pay less attention to the patterns of abusive behaviour that this person still needed to work through. We found ourselves working in ways that we associate with the non-profit industrial complex, looking for easy, marketable victories with the goal of generating statistics glossing over contradictions and inconsistencies that might call our work into question. So I think there's a whole lot in there, and I'm sure Ada and Anthony will probably talk about it a bit, around men's behaviour change work. Like, it's similarly complex work to evaluate. And the question that we often want to ask is, did it work? Like, did our intervention work? And I think when we do that, we tend to often um, evaluate ourselves against this kind of idea of um, an imagined or utopian um, kind of... um, experience where uh, the survivor receives meaningful support, the person who's been held accountable has been through a transformative process, You know, the ripple effects have gone through the community and we've enacted transformation. But the reality is so much more complex. So often we're better off, I think, comparing ourselves to the other alternatives that do exist, like you know, the work of agencies and police and prisons, which are often themselves desperately flawed. So the work is nuanced and it's difficult to capture and, and much of the same challenges um, Face us in evaluating community accountability as do, as face behaviour change programs. How do we capture experiential information rather than just statistics to accurately examine work? And if so, as an example, if substantial behavioural change isn't achieved, but the intervention means that the survivor is able to access safety or to leave the relationship safely, was it a success? You know some of those kinds of questions of complexity, um, and so it doesn't mean that we don't need to monitor our work, but it's a question of what for. You know, it's it's not the same as a non-profit model that we, you know, we're not evaluating for funding or evaluating for effectiveness and to improve and to do good work in the world. So what's useful then is um, is the yardstick centering survivors in our work, in our reflections on it, having articulated principles and ethics being structured, consistent and systematic about risk assessment and safety planning to guide the objectives for our interventions and structuring projects for confidential feedback and taking a harm reduction perspective where at the very least we aim to prevent the harm. We hope to mitigate the impact of the harm that's occurred and to prevent it from happening again. Um, And so I was just going to conclude in my last minute or so um, and say why, given all of the complexity, like the call to action, why would we do community accountability work? Um, And I think, well, essentially because we need to, because we live in the container of white supremacist, capitalist, sexist heteropatriarchy, um, and it really rolls off the tongue. And it's... um, So intimate partner, gendered and sexual violence is rife and right through our communities, and it demands a response from every angle, because we know that people most often turn to family, friends and community when they experience violence. And because when we experience violence, we often choose to or need to remain in our relationships or shared communities. And in turn, those locations, family and communities where the violence occurs, often have the most nuanced and close-up view of it and the, and the strongest investment in the safety of the people involved. And so that's a really unique position to envisage creative responses. Um, and because for many reasons, often people don't want to contact the police or interact with the criminal legal system, or these are not the most fitting options or sites of safety, and insisting that they are or forcing that on people is deeply problematic. Um, And finally, because it means that we take up collective responsibility for our individual and collective action to build safer communities, um, rather than assuming that this is solely the work of outside
4: agencies or systems that are themselves inherently violent. Um, Kira Vola is a proud Wurundjeri woman and musician. She lives in in Mbantua, raising her young family and works advocating for young people and the abolition of youth prisons. She works alongside grandmothers who are traditional owners in Central Australia, advocating for Aboriginal-led alternatives to prison. She is coming to us from Shut Youth Prisons Mbantua. Kira will discuss alternatives to incarceration for young people and culturally appropriate responses for Indigenous youth including taking young people out to homelands.
1: Hi. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm Kira Bola. Um, I'm a Wuranga woman from down south. I live in Alice Springs in Bantua. And um, I've been, I guess, uh, kind of sent down here from the, the grandmothers up there who have been working really hard um, to try and get some sort of Action happening to be able to shut down the the youth prisons in, or in particular Dondale, um, and bring the kids back home and onto country, and so they can be like looked after in culturally appropriate ways and they can learn their culture and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna start off by reading out um, this a statement that the grandmothers sorry the grandmothers um, came up with, and I think they've sent it to Michael Gunner and um. We've just published it around, trying to get some sort of support, and doing rallies and all sorts of things, just trying to get support around this momentum. Because I guess it, a lot of us feel kind of mad sometimes speaking about this, when there's such a big community of people that are just so against kids not being in prison, and just like are so for kids being in prison. And it's really hard to try and I guess get your voice heard. And so I feel oh, another thing I just wanted to say as well. This is like my first time speaking since since um I guess I since I felt pressure to speak because my brother was in Dondale and he was I guess bound by the system and I felt the pressure to have, have to speak on his behalf and all those other times that I've spoken I've felt yeah like the, a pressure to have to speak in the moment and now I feel kind of I feel like it's more of a passion at the moment now for the rest of the kids because my brother's still alive and he still has his life and he's free now like so that's you know that's a blessing but at the same time it's a curse because I'm haunted with all these memories of all these other kids that are still in Dondale. And, like, right now, our, our jail in Alice Springs, our kids' juvenile detention centre, is empty because they're renovating it and they've sent all of the Indigenous kids from there 1,500 kilometres away into, to Darwin, to Dondale. And so they're all 1,500 kilometres away from their country, from their family, from anybody who's able to visit them. And they're sitting in a jail that was closed down years ago for adults because it was riddled with asbestos and these adults couldn't be contained in the prison so the government built the adults a new state-of-the-art prison and put all of the kids into the old prison that's riddled with asbestos, which is where Dylan was held at the time of all of those videos and still, all these kids are still being held there. I've, I've tried to speak to the minister about it, I've tried to speak to Dale Wakefield about it, who's the children's minister um, for family and children's in the NT. And at the moment, her solution was to give Family and Children's Services um, control over juvenile justice, basically. So now, Family and Children's Services isn't just taking kids off of their parents, but they can now take kids off their parents and also send them to jail without them having to go through adult corrections facility at all, which is just so wrong because it's, it's the opposite way in what we're trying to go. We're trying to get kids out of the system completely and facts at the moment are being investigated by the Royal Commission for not being able to do their job in in the part of all of that child protection stuff and yeah, so I'm just going to read this statement out from the Grandmothers and what they've written and, and then I'll just read a bit of my um, speech. Um, so the Grandmothers Group calls upon Michael Gunner, the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, to listen to us. The Grandmothers Group was set up to stop youth detention and to support Aboriginal deaths in custody which has now grown to include support for families dealing with youth suicide and for children and youth experiencing violence on the streets, communities and in detention. The Grandmothers Group calls upon the grandfathers and families to work with us to help all our children and youth in need and to stop the violence against our children and youth on the streets, on the communities and in detention. As Aboriginal families, we care for all our children and youth and we want the government to acknowledge us and listen to us about the care and protection of children and youth. As Aboriginal families, we can work together with others in the community to improve the care and protection of our children by making safe places for them on their homelands and to be in the care of guardianship of their families. As Aboriginal families, we support better management of culturally appropriate diversionary programs to be based throughout the region for Aboriginal children and youth. We support the healing and well-being of all our children and youth by teaching them about respect for themselves, for their elders and families, for others in the community and for their homeland. We want to teach them about their language and culture and to learn about the dreaming of their country and to learn how to listen to the songs and the dance like their elders and ancestors. We support their growth and development in life and want to teach them about their traditional roles and responsibilities with good behaviour and attitude in life. We want to secure better opportunities in schooling, employment and training and in academic and career pathways for our children and youth and for them to achieve in life and to be happy as the future generations of Aboriginal managers and carers for our homelands. The Grandmothers Group would like to thank all those of you who supported our cause by sharing your knowledge and skills and time for standing by us. And so I guess um, elaborating on that, Kids can't do any of that in jail and it's not possible, especially for Indigenous kids, you know, to have any of that connection to culture and, like, in, um, in the NT, I can't remember the percentage of kids, but I think it's it's pretty close to the majority of the kids in Dodeo are Indigenous, which is it's really sickening and saddening for a lot of these grandmothers because they're not, they don't you know, they don't have their grandkids to be able to pass on their songs to, your their, their stories and their culture. and And everything like that. Um, And, um, yes, I just wanted to make sure that I I read that out. um, Because I've I've been blessed with these beautiful, strong women who've been, you know, fighting for these things for years. Like, years and years and years. Marching for years. And still not being heard, not being listened to. And now, like, I feel like, you know, like, young people like myself need to listen to them and take on some of that fight and speak up. And so I wanna, um, I wanna speak a bit about myself and like when I was younger and the kinds of trouble I got into. And I guess the, the ways in which people treated me differently based on the way they thought that, I guess, either if I was too light or if I was too dark in the way that this society, I guess, treats young people. Um, so, so like you may have seen my little brother, Dylan, on um, Four Corners. Um, and i have become an advocate for him over the past year. And um, I, I was raised by my mum, who raised five, five kids as a single mother, and she instilled in us strong values about not being judgmental and being accepting of people from all walks of life. And we moved to Alice Springs when I was about 11 years old, and I grew up in Adelaide before that. When I got to Alice Springs, I hit puberty and rebelled really hard against my mum, and I, was, I, I used to shoplift and walk around town and, and just do lots of really bad things. And there were times when shoplifting, it was just fun, you know, it was just, just to see what, what you could get, if you could get away with it, which I got away with it a lot, and I feel like it was because of my light skin, because there'd be times when I'd go into town with friends who were darker than me or family, and they would know to wait outside the shop because I'd be able to get in the shop and steal something a lot easier than, that, than they would if they'd come in with me, you know. And so just it was just the mindset that no young person should even have to have to have, you know, they shouldn't have to think, you know, I'm going to be judged when I walk into this shop. And there were different managers and different shopkeepers in town who would treat me differently, like... So there would be shopkeepers who would just, say, give me a trespass notice and ban me completely, and then... That would just... It would make me be, like, kind of like a FU type of attitude because, like, there's no... There's no platform for me to be able to learn anything as a young person or for them to be able to teach me anything, and so... To be just banned or barred or told that I'm not allowed to enter somewhere, it was, yeah, it gave me kind of a reason to want to try to sneak in there when the shopkeeper wasn't looking or something. Whereas when, like, and I still remember this manager to this day, she still works at the shop, but she, instead of kicking me out of the shop, she came up and she said, look, I know that you steal from my shop, but I just want you to know that I'm watching you. You can come in my shop whenever you want, but don't steal because I, I know that you steal and I've... Kind of like made me think, oh shit, okay. And then I I stopped and I really like cut back on. I'd go in there, but I, it just made me question, like, why would you let? Me, why would you give somebody that much room to break your trust? And then, you know, they could break it. Which I didn't because she'd given me that trust. And that's kind of where I'm getting to is with kids, you've got to give them trust. Whereas if we're locking kids up from a young age for stealing, for you know breaking, like, one of Dylan's earliest charges was property damage because he couldn't see mum one day in in a fax meeting and so he smashed the fax window building and he got charged with property damage at 11 years old. And that's, like, so many kids in Alice Springs and NT everywhere, really, are being charged with these offences and being criminalised as if they're adults and they know the repercussions of their actions when, as adults and as a society, we could help them learn and, you know, like, take that opportunity to teach them how to better themselves rather than locking them up or taking them through an adult court system. And, like, I don't have all the solutions for this, but I know that there's so much money that's being funneled into prison and into, you know, child protection that's not actually protecting children or helping them or bettering them off in any way. And if all that money was redirected in, into these grandmothers, you know, and their homelands that they have available ready to to better off kids and give them, you know, positive... Positive reinforcement and um, you know achievable goals because you can't really achieve anything in jail. Like that's the last resort to me. I think is is jail. And I I speak on behalf of youth prisons because I don't I haven't even like I said you know it's my first time speaking as as this type of a passion on this this topic. And I just um it's it's just really it hits close to home. Like there's young people in jail and. I just feel like they—they none of them deserve to be there, regardless of what they've done. Like, I feel like there's so many adults, and you know, government and support networks and money that could be redirected and, and funneled into yeah positive, positive things for these kids that um, ultimately could change the rest of their lives, rather than making them feel like criminals for the rest of their life. I'm not, I'm not sure what else. Uh, to say, I think I have a, I have a little bit more, but I kind of went off off trail a little bit. But um, yeah, basically that's that's just where I wanted to speak from a point of yeah, trying to get understanding on like especially Indigenous um Indigenous kids like that's where I'm speaking on a level of Indigenous kids because they have so much underlying issues. You know, we're dispossessed and we don't a lot of intergenerational trauma and disconnection from our culture and, you know, for so long, like, I was trying trying to be this white person like, that, I, I like, just trying so hard to fit into this society that, and I knew it wasn't where I was meant to try to fit into but the world made me feel like it, like, all the stealing, I didn't need to steal like, I, I stole because there was things that I felt I needed to fit in to the world, like, and it wasn't Like I always had everything I needed, but I did those things because I felt, yeah, the pressure of society's made me feel like that. And the same with kids when they're removed from facts, from their families into facts, you know, they're given all these worldly possessions that just take away from love and life and that family value and that's it happens too much and then that leads to anger and all of those underlying issues inside of that child, but then the world doesn't understand why that child's so angry. And it's just so. It just seems like such a simple, a simple thing to be able to understand, but so many people don't understand it. But yeah, I, that's. I'm not sure what else to say.
3: And our final speaker will be Marissa Spolzaro. Uh, Marissa is a
4: human rights advocate and prisoner support advocate. Marissa is a broadcaster for Doing Time, a show on 3CR Community Radio presenting information and discuss- discussion around issues faced by the prisoners in the criminal justice system and migration. Marissa will discuss frameworks for the work she does with criminalised people, why she does the radio show Doing Time and the importance of support and solidarity with criminalised people.
3: Hi, I've been broadcasting at 3CR for over 15 years and have been involved in the prison, indigenous and environmental struggles for many years. I also have a degree in social work from Monash University, a diploma of herbal medicine from Southern Cross Herbal School in Gosford, New South Wales, and a diploma of indigenous therapies from Central Queensland University. I come to this panel with experience and skills working with criminalised youth and youth corrections, women in prison, child protection, and a passion for media. I decided a long time ago that social work was not what I wanted to work, work with. I prefer to call myself an advocate. Um, and in fact, when I was working um, in social work, I was always getting into trouble from other staff members and management because instead of um, a staff member driving me as a vision-impaired woman, I used to walk um, to Centrelink with um, parolees and, and young people that had, that had been in prison And it was a therapeutic way of talking to them. So I'd sort of say, oh, how do you steal cards? You know, how how do you do that? You know, so we But, yeah, so it was pretty cool. Um, Yeah, I kind of got kicked out of social work in a way. um, I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) So I decided to do forest placating instead. (laughs) So um, I just thought I'd share a bit of my personal journey, you know, before I did radio, um, just so that people know who I am. So I mainly participated in forest placating in East Gippsland and the woodchip mills in um, Geelong. And I also did some cooking at Friends of the Earth at the cafe, and I think um, the girls spun out there too. That's I burn myself, but um, it worked out. Um, but currently radio broadcasting is what I do to get the message across. 3CR has been operating since 1976. I currently host the Do and Time show, which um, will be the guiding principle and framework for tonight's panel. I'll be talking about the special role of media and radio broadcasting when overcoming systemic violence and problems, from prison to detention centres to the courtroom. I, I will unpack the ways of the framework in which the Do and Time show works to contribute to transformative justice, and I'll also talk about how media builds the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. And I suppose it would be pretty useful otherwise how are people going to listen to it um, it's I should say what time it is shouldn't I every Monday from four to 5 p.m um, is the show and it's um, you can it also streams live on www.3cr.org.au by the end of this discussion hopefully you'll understand how the doing the time show builds bridges to bring peoples together in order to create empowerment and accountability and work towards communities not prisons In a media climate where companies such as News Limited and Fairfax Media hold about 88% of the print media assets in Australia, and our national broadcast of the ABC has been taken apart by an ideologically driven government, it's vital that people in our community have access to the information and knowledge to make shifts in their lives and to be accountable to their communities. This is particularly crucial when people are criminalised. The Do and Time Show acts as a vehicle for community action, healing and accountability, which are the goals of transformative justice, from, racial, um, from pro- ra- racial profiling as well, which I'll discuss later. Transformation of the social conditions that perpetuate violence, systems of oppression and exploitation, domination and state violence are things that we on the Do and Time Show are committed to. And when I was doing my research on transformative justice, I didn't know what the hell it meant. But then I had a look and I thought, hey, this is what the Doin' Time Show does. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> I didn't even know what it was. And I just realised that the show does that. <laughs> Go figure. Why and how do we broadcast the Doin' Time Show? Why is it needed? What do we broadcast? So I'll give you, a, give you a bit of a rundown here. In a time when government uses divide and conquer tactics that splits communities, we need to be forever vigilant. The Do and Time show has a long history of providing media work in the Aboriginal deaths in custody movement. The program oh well, I already told you that. that. and just say that again. Um, yeah, so every Monday, the show provides people with a safe environment to speak about their experiences. To be clear, we are committed to the lived experience of prisoners. To give an example, we interviewed Claire Seppings, who wrote an excellent report, and she had a Churchill Fellowship documenting overseas research about ex-prisoners implementing programs for their peers. Why would you want to have prisoners, like people that aren't prisoners in programs that don't have lived experience? And it's always good to have support people there, but ultimately we were interviewing about the lived experience and we often have many, many ex-prisoners on the show as well. By organising interviews with women in prison and also men, we are fostering opportunities for inmates and ex-prisoners to talk about their lived experience whilst monitoring peer support for them and encouraging them to meet and discuss pertinent issues. To fulfil these goals on the show, we make certain the reports such as the Ombudsman's publications containing recommendations, um, the Bring Them Home report and other important reports that become available are talked about and analysed. In this way, these reports are used as educational tools for listeners. Other reports publicised on the show, are the ones from Kensington Flemington Community Legal Centre, and I've often bugged Anthony Kelly. Hey, Anthony, I'll say, do you want to be interviewed? I'll probably ring him at 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, pretty short notice, but he's, he's really good about coming on. And, and in fact, <laughs> I'll probably piss him off. But, anyway, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, yeah, so it's it's pretty good. And we, we've interviewed um, Tamar Hopkins as well. And In fact, we recently recorded a symposium as well, which appears on a podcast if people want to have a look on the website. Um, where Tamar Hopkins um, and many other speakers talked about um, racial profiling and and also police investigating police. Um, We've also interviewed about the Equality is Not the Same report and many, many submissions about ending racial profiling. We've interviewed also, um, recorded a a speech also by Karina Horbath, which um, Anthony talked about earlier on. We do lawyers as well from the Human Rights Law Centre and um, we keep an eye on ongoing protest and anti-masking laws and provide a forum for protesters and arrestees to come onto the show. And then it gets a bit sticky because we have to be really careful about contempt of court. Um, In standing in solidarity with women in prison, refugees, asylum seekers and other minority groups, we are providing a voice and using media as a way to help people heal. Our media is a weapon for change. And, you know, I have some people say to me, well, why do you watch the news? And and I say, well, look, I watch the news because I like to use um, the mainstream media as a weapon. Um, Should I say weapon? (laughs) Yeah, but you know what I mean. As a weapon to, um, to, to actually talk about alternatives to alternative media. The over-policing of diverse peoples of colour, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders remains the most urgent issue across the criminal justice system in Australia. The gradual and tragic process of colonisation is complicit in dispossession as a well-established feature of the destruction of Aboriginal self-determination. We address this through interviewing Aboriginal elders, lawyers and community workers about the over-incarceration of Indigenous people, prison overcrowding and other violations of human rights, including the deprivation of medical treatment in prison. Accountability to ex-prisoners is paramount on our show. We have interviewed women coming out of prison who have been traumatised by strip searches and other atrocious interventions. We interviewed Jeff McMullen, who's a filmmaker and journalist, about Vincent Linguari. To quote from his interview, he says that after such a long period of oppressive policies... That clearly fail Aboriginal people, we need to think more deeply about Vincent Lingari's conviction that it is possible to share this land fairly with everyone who now calls this country home. The stories of Aboriginal elders provide healing for us all, especially when we conduct historical interviews about people from the Stolen Generation and looking at Aboriginal freedom fighters that were hanged in Melbourne. And indeed, there is a statue near Victoria Market for all to see. The Dawn Time show is constantly interviewing elders and lawyers and activists about the um, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. We discuss the Royal Commission's 339 recommendations in detail and educate listeners. And we talk about the, the notification service. Sometimes I feel like um, on the radio I sound like a broken-down record because it's repeat, repeat, repeat. You've just got to keep repeating it and acting as a watchdog. And that's how... Um, that's how we become. We're accountable. We make the state and the government accountable in, with violence. So that's what um, alternative media is about. We interview families who fight for their loved ones who died in suspicious circumstances. People like Arnie Patricia on behalf of Mr. Briscoe, Uncle Sean on behalf of Miss Dew who died in custody. Interviewing Isjo Indigenous Social Justice Association about Veronica Baxter the transgender woman who, um, who wasn't given any, any um, hormone medication. Um, we, we interview also about the history of um, gay people being criminalised. Um, I'll use an example to highlight the lack of accountability. In the Northern Territory, people can be locked up on a, on a whim under new, a new paperless arrest regime. West Australians are still being jailed for unpaid fines. It is almost as if the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody never took place. Take the Aboriginal death in custody of Miss Dew, a young Aboriginal woman who died in custody. The medical system were not accountable because of lack of duty of care. The police were not accountable either. Recommendation 87 of the Royal Commission is arrest people only when there is no other way of dealing with the problem. And Recommendation 92 states imprisonment should be utilised only as a sanction of last resort. Recommendation 121 is for old fines to be waived, which is the total opposite of the West Australian Prison for Fines policy. Miss Dew was in custody for not paying her fines and she died horribly and alone. The family is still seeking answers. There is simply not enough time and the interviews are too too numerous to discuss here. The Do and Time Show tries as much as possible to acknowledge and honour the anniversaries of the deaths of Aboriginal deaths in custody. We also interview people on the anniversaries of massacres such as Mile Creek, for instance. And of course, we can't forget Lex Watton who is a warrior and became a political prisoner to support Cameron DiMaggio, who died in police custody, and killer cop Chris Hurley was acquitted and promoted to the Gold Coast. How is that being accountable? The Do Time show has done extensive coverage on the Hickey family after TJ Hickey was killed by police in um, 2004, and persecution of the Hickeys continues to this day. We went to Sydney and recorded interviews on the day of what's known as the Hickey trial some years ago now, where police lied on the witness stand. I include these examples here to show you what the Do and Time Show is is, is doing. Pardon the pun. (laughs) To emphasize the work that we do to connect people, to allow families to express their grief on air, to expose police investigating police. We also record protest forums and symposiums and conferences outside and air those as well. And of course, we can't forget the fascists, the right-wingers. The Do and Time Show has has covered some of these fascist rallies to bring attention to racism. My whole Coast and I um, had media equipment on us and dodged this crowd of fascists marching down the street in their military paraphernalia. And we had to dodge them. I mean, some people were saying, uh, hey, why didn't you go and confront them? Yeah, right, I'm going to go and confront them and get my head kicked in and I'm not going to be able to record the protest. You know, so... (laughs) Go figure. Um, Yeah, and we also have really good music on doing time, punk and metal, um, in my spare time, (laughs) I like and metal kids and going in the pit. Um, <laughs> promoting Aboriginal artists as well. We promote, um, and there was a really cool band actually um, from the Northern Territory called Desert Metal and we promote them as well because it's really important to promote all artists but Aboriginal artists as well. Um, so we also have, I mean, and we haven't been <laughs> able to do this because there's not enough prisoners that, I mean, a lot of the prisoners I think would be in lockdown when this show is on but a lot of prisoners used to listen in and we used to have like a request show and um i remember one time i actually caught public transport in the rain to go and um, collect this tape from one of the legal centers to take it back and play romeo and juliet by dire straits because there was um a guy who died on as a, in a motorbike accident for this woman in prison and she was so happy and that's the thing that we like doing we like to to connect people and so the show's pretty grassroots. Um, more recently, we have interviewed D- Dylan, and, have, and, uh, and thank you to um, all the speakers. I really enjoyed um, listening to all of you, and Dylan's sister too, and have also done extensive coverage on the Royal Commission to Youth Detention. And what really got to me is, you know, Malcolm Turnbull has the bloody audacity to, you know, say that there has to be a Royal Commission and this, all this stuff happened in 2015 and the doing Time Show was on there first and I'm not trying to be competitive. And no, I'm not Channel 9. But, <laughs> you know, and Dylan was just um, pretty good. He talked about cultural programs and being in the bush and how important it is that, you know, that we, ha- we shut down the youth prisons and, and have more, um, more things in the bush and that's important. In tra- transformative justice, it's about healing and accountability and fighting oppression and change. And to address state violence in particular, and individual violence, transformative justice is evident in the following ways when applied to the Do and Time show. Liberation, shifting power, accountability, safety. Um, the other thing I, ne- I need to say as well is that we've, we've interviewed the Grandmothers Against Removal as well, and refugee ac- activists, um, and American Black Panthers such as Mamia Bujamal. I actually spent um, a couple of years in America and um, I used to go to, to protests in LA and I remember one time I had, I had two people from Copwatch um, taking me down to, um, to the station. So a lot of people have met and they've had some wonderful meetings and networks formed as a result. So, and the last thing I want to say is that people we interview are empowered even in death. Aboriginal warrior and activist Ray Jackson um, in New South Wales, Istja, passed away recently and we pay tribute to him by recording memorials um, for the Do and Time Show. As gesture of healing, we invited his daughter Carolyn to be interviewed so that she could express her grief on the show and pay tribute and celebrate his life. So there are significant gaps and much more work needs to be done and the Do and Time Show tries to fill that, that gap. I would like to conclude by saying that public government spending needs to go into innovating programs to prevent imprisonment, and that's what we aim to do, to provide a media forum to make that happen. Our research is cutting-edge and detailed. And as a personal touch, I'd like to say that I have also been criminalised in my life. You do not have to be in prison to be a target of the state. Transformative justice is also about respecting cultural and racial differences. Regardless of race, we we need to unite against our enemy, which is capitalism. To only say that we support First Nations people is paternalistic, and we will be forever mimicking the features of colonisation. We must instead connect all our struggles in solidarity in our shared oppression, black, white or brindle, as warrior Ray Jackson used to say. Ray has since passed away, but the legacy of standing together in solidarity lives on. The people united shall never be defeated. And that was... um, You were listening to a panel discussion um, organised by Undercurrents. Apologies that we weren't able to put the speakers in order due to time constraints, but we will be airing um, the rest of the speakers um, next Monday, which would be the 13th of November. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you um, every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. See you next week. Um, Blackfellow, Whitefellow will be on next, and Beyond Zero up next.